welcome to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, the podcast where we lift the lid, bust the myths and explore the incredible history of the First World War. I'm Dan Hill, a military historian and battlefield guide specialising in the history of the war on the Western Front. And I'm Dr Spencer Jones, author and senior lecturer in war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. In this episode, we will explore the final great offensives on the Western Front, collectively known as the Hundred Days. They would decisively break trench warfare and lead to the end of the fighting on the 11th of November, 1918. Well done. It's great to be back with you on the podcast once more. And this is something of a milestone episode for us because it's actually going to conclude our survey of British battles on the Western Front. We began, of course, with Mons in 1914, moved through Luce 1915, Somme 1916, Passchendaele 1917, and we've previously covered the spring offensives in two episodes. But the campaign we're going to look at now is not just a battle on the Western Front, it's actually a series of battles, and they're pretty big ones. They are indeed. It's going to be the famous 100 days, or 100 days more precisely. And it's going to really conclude the entire series, as you said. Uh, of course, there's so much more to cover, and we're not going to be drawing drawing a line just here. But at least to give an overview, we're going to be looking at the, the famous actions. We're going to look at, really, I think, from about the 8th of August through to the 11th of November, of course, when the armistice comes into effect at 11 o'clock on that famous morning. So loads to cover in this one, some exciting stuff to look at. And I think in, in many ter- in many ways, Spence, I, I like looking at this in the kind of chronological sense because all of the lessons and the elements that we've discussed in the previous episodes leading up to this, it, I've kind of got a feeling they kind of culminate really in the 100 days because you, you get that combination of those lessons, very hard one lessons as we've uh, previously covered, but really they kind of come to fruition in this period of time. They do. And this is something that's sometimes known as the revolution in military affairs, that the idea that warfare was completely revolutionized between 1914 and 1918, and that the the model of warfare that's in place by 1918 is still the model of warfare that, to a large extent, we have in the 21st century, combining armoured vehicles, air power, long-range artillery, and infantry who are armed with a variety of weapons. And if you consider how the armies were in 1914 when we began our survey, way back with the Battle of Mons, every infantryman is armed with a rifle, very small number have operate machine guns, aircraft are very primitive, they can't actually engage each other, tanks are vehicles from science fiction, And cavalry is still a really major arm. And then we look at how warfare is by 1918. It has changed dramatically in four years. And as you say, it's the culmination of everything that warfare has been building up to and to this point, this combination of the mechanical along, of course, with the human. And it looks like a modern battle as we would understand it. Indeed, I'd venture so far to say you could pick a commander, an Allied commander from August 1918, transport him into the 21st century and show him the weapons of war that are available now, and he would understand how to use them. Yes, technology has improved, but the basic principles of war, combining your arms, has remained the same since 1918. Yeah, it's a really interesting element. And I suppose when we get into the detail of this, it will come out that, of course, it's we are already focusing or predominantly focusing on the British experience here. But of course, it's the same across most major nations in Europe. And this is amongst other things, where when we turn 20 years down the line to 1939, you see the same type of fighting going on again. I'm sure we'll get into who the original creator of Blitzkrieg as a concept was as we get through this episode. But the interesting thing, not only is the equipment the same, but in many cases, the commanders are the same as well. Because all of the senior commanders, uh, with perhaps one or two exceptions in 1939-1940, are guys that cut their teeth in 1914-1918. And the predominant thing they leave with is that experience of combined arms or all-arms warfare at the end of the war. Now, there's a much bigger question, Spence, about whether the Brits forget about all-arms warfare in the interwar Mm. years. Certainly the Germans don't. But that is no doubt has its founding principles in 1918, and particularly the Hundred Days. Yes, it really does. And I'd love us in a future podcast to get into what happens to the British Army after the First World War, because it's it's quite a sad story in many respects. British Army does a very good job of trying to forget everything it has learned so painfully in 1918, whereas the Germans defeated by that very method do a, a much better job of adopting it themselves. And that speaks to 
back into the first world war of the nature of learning. Because if you've been following along with us, and I hope you have in all the previous episodes, particularly when we were looking at 1915 and 1917, it seems like the British army is not really learning a lot or it's being outthought by the Germans. They're adapting faster than the British can adapt. But by 1918, and particularly the summer of 1918, you've really reached a culmination point, particularly for the British, where they have finally, finally, painfully, after much human sacrifice, human loss, human efforts, um, tragedies in many ways, have finally put together an army that is modern, well-trained, well-equipped, and it's ready to turn the tide of war. And I think it's important to establish something here, and this is that the summer of 1918, it isn't just about what's happened in 1918. It's also about the attritional nature of the war going way back to 1914. That attrition has been going on, being applied to both sides, but it's affected the Germans very severely by 1918. We've occasionally revisited the German home front during this discussion. And by the summer of 1918, conditions on the German home front are, are really excruciatingly poor. The British naval blockade has really completely choked out German trade. Calories, daily calories for German civilians are now under 1,000 calories a day. It's even worse in the Austro-Hungarian Empire where your daily ration falls to 830 calories a day. That's just about enough to live on, but you're going to suffer in it. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, those are poor quality calories too. Lots of substitute ingredients that aren't very nutritious. So the home front is groaning and the German army is also groaning under the pressure. It suffered huge casualties through 15, 16, 17, and also at the start of 18. One thing to emphasize at the end of the spring offensive between March and June 1918, the Germans have suffered about a million casualties in that spell. And on top of the casualties it suffered in the previous years, the, the attrition is now, it can't be ignored. It has worn down the German army's human uh, element. It's worn down its material element. The Germans just can't replace lost equipment in the same way the Allies can. Its artillery's worn out. It can't produce enough shells to feed its guns. This is a tired army, but it's still a formidable army in the summer of 1918. It really is. And, uh, you know, whilst we of course, need to acknowledge the fact that, you know, the German army of 1918 is really a shadow of its form. So perhaps at its peak, maybe around 1915, where they're showing that great skill in defence, real ability to adapt and overcome, and still got some fairly large numbers of physically able men. What we should also remember as well, and we touched on this in the last episode, is that the uh, you've got now fresh American troops coming in and strong, well-fed, well-built, highly motivated American troops now coming up against exhausted, demoralized, and starving German troops. So that gulf is going to become even become even more clear. It's perhaps less clear on the British and the French side of things because there is an element of war weariness. And in terms of fighting skill and physical prowess, actually the British Army of 1918, whilst it has learned as an organization, man for man, it probably isn't at its peak because by now we've got a lot of younger conscripts that are coming in, filling in the ranks of those older, more experienced men who've been lost in some of these horrific battles that we've covered over the last few episodes. So whilst, yes, the, the cards are certainly stacked against the Germans and they're now having to prop up the failing Austro-Hungarians as well, further spreading their or thinning their line across the Western and the Southeastern front, if you like, you know, things are not looking great, but it's not all plain sailing. And of course, there's going to be a huge amount of fighting and spent staggering numbers of casualties sustained in this 100-day advance. There, there really is. There's a great, great point there about that the British and French armies, they're weary too. The huge casualties have been suffered in the previous years of the war. And two things I'd like to draw out about the British and the French that I think are worthy of comment is the, the fact that these armies, especially the French, who've, of course, suffered terribly through 1915, 16, and into 17. They've mutinied in 1917. It's how the British and the French still are able to dig deep and find the will, the morale, the determination to fight on in what, as you've rightly said, is actually a very bloody hard and hard-fought campaign. And spare a thought too, especially for the Australians. The Australians are still all volunteer in 1918. 
unlike Canada and New Zealand, who've adopted conscription to keep their manpower up, the Australians have had two referendums in Australia about whether conscription should be introduced, and both have been defeated. And so the Australian Corps still volunteers. It is really on its last legs by the end of 1918. And yet these weary armies, the British, the French, and by British, of course, we mean British Empire, they find the will to continue to fight. And I think part of that is that they are noticeably well-equipped by this stage because one big advantage the Allies have over the Germans is in equipment. British lose a staggering amount of equipment in the spring offensives. In fact, the Germans speculate that it's going to take the British at least until 1919 and to replace all that lost equipment. But that's not the case. By July 1918, so months ahead of schedule, months of what the, ahead of what the Germans expect, the British have replaced all of their lost equipment and much more as well. They have an absolute surfeit of guns, tanks, planes, machine guns, mortars, everything you can think of. The full might of the industrialised British Empire, which more so than any other nation is the arsenal of democracy in the First World War, has re-equipped the British Army. In fact, it's not only equipped the British Army, it's also helped to equip the American Army as well, because the American American war industry is quite small, though it's got tremendous manpower. In 1918, it has to draw on British and French equipment. So although the army's tired, it can't take comfort in the fact it is now better equipped than at any point in the war. And it's perhaps the only time in the war, the only time in perhaps British Army history that the army gets to fight a rich man's war where resources are available in vast quantities. And to put that into a, a, a cutting example, in the 100 days, British army artillery allowances are measured in tonnages. Not hundreds of rounds, not individual numbers of shells, tonnage of shell is how much a battery can fire each day. Whereas the Germans are still measuring their daily allowance in the hundreds or the thousands of rounds, individual rounds. Differences of scale of production have now become apparent. But, point going back to the point you made, Dan, the fact that the fighting of the 100 days is so bloody and so intense, and it really is bloody and intense, even with that material advantage, I think it speaks to the point we were making earlier about just how hard fighting the Germans remain in this period. Yeah, and I think we can get stuck into that in a minute by explaining and understanding exactly how these new weapons are going to be used to, to crack the conundrum of trench warfare but as you were speaking there Spence some a statistic stuck in my mind recently and it's from the the town that I come from in Hertfordshire and it was something that I remember that was really prominent to me a little while back and you mentioned about artillery allowance so in my local town there's a uh, an industrial complex a little uh, a little factory setup which is converted into making shells in 1915 and it makes shells from 1915 to the end of the war so right the way through. It employs about a 1,000 guys, including a lot of Belgians, to make shells. And throughout the entire war period, it makes about a million shells, a little bit under a million shells. On the 29th of September, 1918, the British Army in one day fires a million shells. God. I think 929,000, something like that. So this is a 1,000 people working for nearly four years in a factory with all of their wages, their food, all of the support that's required to do it. British Army expends it in a day. That's just how enormous these kind of, uh, this, this weight of industry that is coming into, uh, coming into the fight by the time we reach August. And, I mean, August is, is really key. And uh, 8th of August, I think, is in, in many ways, particularly in British historians' eyes, is seen as the kind of uh, the high point of potentially an entire British army history, the Battle of Amiens, where all of these things finally come together and we manage to crack this trifecta that has been dominating the Western Front, artillery, machine guns, and barbed wire for four years. There's a better argument, I think, and we did touch on it last time, that in fact that maybe that blueprint is put down slightly earlier and not by the Brits. But from a British point of view, at least, this is what we need to be looking at. In terms of numbers, as you said, things have got enormous. Uh, and another stat that, that immediately springs to mind, the British Army, uh, I should say the Royal Flying Corps, part of the British Army at the time in 1914, I think goes to France with something like 60 aircraft, ends the First World War with 22,000 around the world. 
This is a staggering, staggering numbers. But how exactly, Spencer, are we going to take this uh, this material and numerical superiority against a, a war-weary German army? How are we going to combine all of those lessons and the material we've got and finally break through trench warfare? So there's a few things to unpick here that I think are, are really interesting. So the, the battle we're talking about, listeners, is the Battle of Amiens. Beginning on the 8th of August, it lasts for about four days. Uh, there's, then there's substory cleaning up operations afterwards. So between the 8th and the 12th of August. And it's going to be fought essentially at the gates of Amiens. Now, if you were listening to earlier episodes, you might recall our first episode on the German spring offensives, how they broke through on the Somme and they drove to the gates of Amiens before eventually they ran out of steam and they were stopped. And so that's where the battle's going to take place. The British want to push out from Amiens, big logistics hub, reclaim that lost Somme battlefield. And several things come into play here. One, Amiens is a, is a huge British logistics base. And so it's the perfect staging ground for a major offensive because logistics are very, very strong here. And it allows the British to assemble an absolutely mighty force ready to strike the Germans at Amiens. Uh, there's something like 800 aircraft allocated to support this offensive alone. And there's 580 tanks, the most tanks the British have assembled for any single offensive up to this point on the Western Front, including the most modern Mark V tanks and the Mark V Star tanks, which are almost a sort of experimental weapon in the summer, plus uh, Britain's latest tank, the Whippet tank. It's a fast tank, fast by the standards of 1918, that's designed to break through. And not only have the British assembled all this massive material, they've also brought some of their best divisions down here, because I'm referring to it as a British offensive, but it is in many ways a British Empire offensive, because both the Australians and the Canadians are going to play a key role in this offensive too. So the British have brought their best guys with an absolutely staggering weight of equipment to the Amiens front. And on the Amiens front, the front here is different to how the Western Front has been before, because the German breakthrough in March means that they've advanced through this area. But if you recall that episode in, uh, when we covered that battle, one of the problems the British had there was the area of the Somme was devastated from 1916, hadn't been properly repaired. Well, guess what? When the battles fought there in 1918, all of the British repair work they've done gets devastated again. And so the Germans have marched up to the gates of Amiens, but their rear area, their logistics area, is a real mess. And they're having all the same problems the British had in March 1918, trying to restore it and repair it and put it into some sort of working order. And it means the trenches in front of Amiens they're strong. The Germans are building them on the defence in depth system, the Lossberg system, or a variant of. But it's not the same as the defences were at, say, Third Eep, Passchendaele, where they'd been there for years. These are a lot more fragile, these defences. And crucially, there's not that much depth behind them because the Germans just don't have the manpower to actually do it. Nevertheless, the Germans are very good at, when they get a position, turning it into a bit of a fortress belt. We've made a running joke in this. Three things, life, death, and German... count. Sorry, three things in life... Uh, death taxes and German counterattacks. We might even add a fourth one to it and say, if the Germans stop in an area for any length of time in the First World War, they fortify it. So it is still a heavily fortified zone, just not perhaps as fortified as elsewhere. And so the conditions here are actually quite strongly in favour of the British doing something. They've assembled this really powerful force. They're going to attack with combined arms, tanks, aircraft, Massive artillery bombardment. It's a multinational assault. So there's British, Australians, Canadians. There's some Americans as well in this area. And they're going to smash a not exactly a weak point on the German front, but certainly a weaker point. And the actual attack, if you compare, Dan, if you compare the opening of the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the 1st of July 1916, it's almost unrecognisable. It really is. And I, I think just to reiterate a point that you just made that I think is really important. When you say it's not necessarily a weak point, I think that the key thing here is, but it is a thin point, and this this lack of depth is going to really, really play a part. Uh, there have been various instances in the, the First World War, and, and areas that we've covered where a break-in is not impossible. What is very, very difficult is a, uh, is a breakthrough. So the idea of getting into the German rear areas. And in order to do that, we've now got, as we've already discussed, and no doubt we'll go into in more detail, new weapons that are able to sustain the advance and sustain it at a high tempo and on a long period of time. So 
what we're going to see in this battle is things almost unheard of things like having aircraft delivering ammunition to tanks in action on the battlefield troops being brought up in ad hoc armored personnel carriers tanks that can literally transport troops aircraft strafing positions ahead of time all of these kind of elements that is, is absolutely a la second world war you know it's, it, it's straight out of the playbook of, of blitzkrieg 1939-1940 we're gonna see momentum gained and momentum maintained which is something that nobody's been able to do just yet the Germans have struggled. They've kind of got halfway there in the spring offensive in the first few days. They've run out of steam. The Brits have seen the Germans run out of steam and they've figured out why that's happened as well. And so we're going to now implement new ways of making sure that that momentum can get maintained. Quite simply, as, as Spence, as you quite rightly say, anywhere the Germans stay for more than a couple of days, they're going to start sticking spades in the ground and digging defences. The Allied plan at this point is to prevent that happening. And they're going to do that by launching attacks at Amiens. At any time it looks like German defences might settle, they're going to push on. And then they're going to push on further up the line. And they're going to draw the last remaining reserves on the German side from pillar to post, not knowing where they've got to go. These uh, Trying to plug gaps in a, a leaking bath, which is full of, full of plugs, and you've only got one bit of cork to, to seal that up with. I like that analogy. I'm going to keep it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this is really the position that the Allies want to put the Germans in. They want to stretch their already stretched resources, and they're going to do that, and it's going to start off right here at Amiens. And as you say, Spence, the, the tactics used and the way that these advances go, particularly in areas like the Chipili Spur, are going, to be, uh, are going to be fascinating and studied even to this day. Yes, they are. And this is a good point that you've made about that this is part of a wider series of Allied offensives. The 100 Days are a multinational offensive all the way up and down the Western Front where the British are attacking, the French are attacking, the Americans are attacking. And I draw an, a boxing analogy. We've had a few boxing analogies on this uh, show uh, so far. Whereas in 1915, 16, 17, the Allied approach to breaking the Western Front was just trying to land one gigantic knockout punch, a huge haymaker over the top. By 1918, it's a bit different. Rather than just trying to land one gigantic punch, instead it's a barrage of punches, digging your opponent in the ribs, making him drop his guard, then hitting him over the top. He covers up top, you hit him in the ribs again. And so as if there's a British offensive, Amiens, for example, comes to a halt, culminates, the French launch an attack elsewhere, then the Americans launch an attack, then it's back to the British, and it means the Germans can't shuttle around their reserves. It's not dissimilar to the general offensive concept the Allies had tried in 1916, except it's localised on the Western Front. And there's a key ingredient here, and it goes back to the point about logistics. The Allies probably would have liked to have done that, in 1916 or 17, they just didn't have the logistical strength to do it. By 1918, logistics, materials, supplies are so plentiful for the Allies that they can move their forces around much more easily on the rail network. As you say, making use of motorized transport to move troops and ammunition, airdrops from, from, by planes dropping ammunition down for advancing troops. The army's so much more agile and it's so much more mobile. And this series of uh, this barrage of blows that are going to land on the Germans are, is going to prove overwhelming. And crucially, it's not... The Allies don't have it all their own way in the 100 days, but where the British in particular attack now, whereas in the past, like the 1st of July 1916, often stopped dead in its tracks. Now in the 100 days where the British attack, they are overrunning German positions consistently and with pretty devastating results. Yeah, and, and there's a real domino effect to this as well, because the, the more quickly this can be done and the higher the momentum can be kept up, the easier it is to knock over the, the subsequent domino. And I think one of the key things that we've already brought out in this, but is worth again mentioning, in effect, their rear areas are over smashed up ground. Now, if you'll get your position's getting overrun, or looks like it might do, dragging guns back over areas like that is going to be very, very difficult. And so you're likely to lose, particularly with a fast, a fast assault, likely to lose a lot more of your material and supplies and machine guns and all these kind of heavy items that are difficult to, um, not so portable around the battlefield. And the more of those you lose, the harder the job gets. And so it's unsurprising in a way that by the time the Brits managed to pierce through the fairly thin crust of the Amiens defences on the 8th of August 1918 and then start their drive eastwards, once that ball starts rolling or those dominoes start falling, it's very, very difficult for the Germans to actually make it halt. And that's exactly the Allied plan. Just don't let them dig in. Don't let them draw breath. 
keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, even if it's not necessarily the Brits on one side, because of course there are difficulties with moving forward. It's the same problem with going over that already destroyed ground, but somebody else will take up that attack elsewhere. And so the momentum, once it once it starts to turn, it's really, it's a, it's a tide that becomes fairly unstoppable from that point of view. It's um, it, it always fascinated me, Spence, and uh, I, we've already mentioned the word Blitzkrieg once. I just want to make a little segue here and just ask you and see what you think. We've not discussed this ahead of time. I'd be really interested to know, do you think what we're seeing in August 1918, this combined arms, aircraft suppressing machine gun positions, artillery keeping gunners heads down, smashing up the ground, whilst armoured assaults go in and through the line and then followed by the the slower or the faster whippets and even cavalry in this case to exploit into and beyond the German uh, lines of, uh, of of solid defense. Are we just looking at Blitzkrieg? Are we looking at combined arms warfare that we see at the start of the Second World War here? In many respects, we are. Now, I caveat this with my usual historian's excuse. It's complicated. Blitzkrieg's a complicated concept. It's got uh, a lot of elements to it. But in, in many respects, we are. And just to tease out a little bit more about the assault at Amiens, it's got elements that will later become crucial for a successful armoured advance in the Second World War, or even beyond this. Air superiority, if not supremacy, surprise, swiftness of attack, devastating fire support. And at Amiens, all of these features come together. You have hundreds of tanks, you have a mass of guns. There's over 2,000 artillery pieces are going to be firing in support of this. They've undergone what's called silent registration, using the latest technologies of photo reconnaissance, sound ranging, which is a, a top secret British and French method for detecting German guns when they fire by their sound. So the British have not fired any ranging shots. The infantry themselves are kept to the highest standards of secrecy. In fact, in the build-up to Amiens, troops are told there's going to be a trench raid on the Germans, just in case the Germans capture a stray Tommy and interrogate him and he gives the game away there's going to be an offensive. The offensive opens up with almost complete surprise on the Germans and you've got this combination of this massive, devastating artillery bombardment. Virtually every German gun battery on the front has been identified by the British prior to this, and they get absolutely plastered when the offensive begins. Tanks lead the way with low-flying aircraft flying above them. And in one of my sort of, when you think about how modern this is, it's quite remarkable. You've got low-flying British prowler aircraft they're observing flying over the front. And some of them are designated specifically find German anti-tank guns. Now, the Germans don't have a specific anti-tank gun in 1918. They have to use a field gun, the 77mm, which is pretty big, it's pretty bulky. The Germans have to put about a quarter of all their artillery into the front line as anti-tank guns. But these British aircraft are flying around with wireless sets on board. And when they locate a German field gun in an anti-tank position, they immediately wire back to specialist British artillery batteries who are designated flatten anti-tank guns. And these are so effective that there's actually a German anti-tank gun team get captured on Amiens. They haven't fired a shot. They're interrogated after the battle and the interrogator says, why didn't you open fire? Why didn't you fire a shot? And the commander of this gun says, there was no point. There were so many aircraft above us. The moment we fired a shot, we'd have been killed because seconds later, a bombardment would hit us. And when we think about modern warfare using drones to direct fire, well, this is exactly it. It's just using the technology of the day. And for the Germans who were hit by this offensive, it must have felt like nothing they'd experienced. Hundreds of tanks, devastating bombardment, skies full of British and Allied aircraft, infantry swarming forward, and the Germans are dealt an absolutely enormous blow on the 8th of August. And quite rightly, the German commander in the West, Erich Ludendorff, describes it as the Black Day of the German army. Yeah, it's uh, there's one particular incident that sticks in my mind. And the only reason I bring it up now is because it couldn't have happened without what you've just described, and that's the knocking out of anti-tank guns. So these kind of concentric and, and mutually supporting defensive positions, you know, without anti-tank guns, okay, you're very vulnerable to armor coming forward. And we say armor in a kind of inverted commas way here. But one particular tank, a little whippet tank, two-man whippet tank named Musical Box, manages to break through at the Chipilly Spur because anti-tanks have been anti-tank guns have been cleared by a, a great bit of collaboration between, of course, the aircraft of the Royal Air Force as it is by 1918 along with the Royal Artillery, they clear a path and it allows Musical Box to roar in at a top speed of 
nine miles an hour or whatever it might be. <laughs> and she basically goes into the German rear areas and chews up an entire German field artillery uh, brigade. Does enormous damage, this one tank. The, the effect of that, of course, is it then reduces, significantly reduces the fire on the slower moving tanks as they move forward and the infantry who's coming along either alongside or in support of them. And when you now don't have artillery causing massive damage to your infantry coming forward, guess what? They can attack quicker. Your tanks, your main tanks have not been knocked out. They can now neutralize machine guns. All of a sudden, this intricate web that's been weaved that is the defense of the Western Front is being unpicked. And that's exactly what we see here at Amiens. And go back to the question that, Spencer, you cleverly managed to skirt around with regards Blitzkrieg and whether it's there. I would argue... <laughs> The, the bulk of, of Blitzkrieg, or the, the concept behind it, certainly combined arms warfare, can very much be seen on the 8th of August 1918. I think, yes, G giving up my, my fig leaf of <laughs> it's complicated, all the elements are in place. And there's so many elements that I, I can't emphasize this enough to the listeners are completely revolutionary in that they've only emerged within four years. Just give you another little feel about this. The, the British are launching deep bomber raids on the Germans using what are then heavy bombers, the Handley Pages, that are dropping bombs on rail yards and headquarters to cover the advance of the tanks. Getting into position before Amiens, the British are flying planes up and down the line so that their engine noise masks the arrival of all these fighting machines. You've got wireless tanks. They don't really work that well, but they've got tanks where they've been hollowed out with a wireless inside, and they're meant to follow the main tanks and serve as a communication device. You've got supply tanks that distribute ammunition to the remainder. You've got fast tanks like whippets. And crucially, you've got an idea now about breaking through the German position. Whereas thinking right back to the Battle of Loos, the idea about what happens when you break through, well, just go into the blue and something good will happen. It's the Somme, the need to try and just coordinate, not let your flanks get exposed. Now, with these armoured spearheads, supported, of course, by infantry, you're getting breakthroughs here and there, like Musical Box, which you've just mentioned, breaking through and causing havoc, then linking up with other forces. You've got cavalry going through. And cavalry in 1918, the summer of 1918, you might think, well, what are they doing on the battlefield? Well, actually, they're very useful on the battlefield of 1918. They're fast, and these aren't the cavalry of 1914, as tough and resourceful as they were. Now you've got cavalry riding around. They're carrying mortars, machine guns, as well as swords, and in some cases, lances. And they're going forward, and they serve as a sort of very short-ranged paratrooper force. So they'll find a gap, they'll go through it, they'll advance a few miles, they'll capture a, a key location, a town or something, hold it, dismount and hold it, and they'll wait for everybody else to catch up which they do. And that's something that is, you just don't see on the Allied side on the Western Front before this time. And all the, all the ingredients of modern warfare are here. And crucially, the British and the French are using them very skillfully. Yeah, they really are. And I think when you actually unpick this and, and look at all of the different elements, there's no great surprise, actually, that the Allies managed to achieve what they achieved. And I wonder if you took it a year back and looked at, okay, well, why wasn't this done in late 1970s? Well, the, the truth is the lessons hadn't been learned. The equipment wasn't there and the, the knowledge and ability weren't there. And also the Germans are a hell of a lot stronger in 1917. So all of this, uh, this combination of things, it's why the war plays out the way it does. But what we should focus on here is that once that line is broken and broken by the Brits, broken by the French to the south and subsequently then broken by the, the Americans, but they have a tough fight through the Meuse-Argonne coming up, there are a number of um, uh, you know a number of things that we need to remember. One is that trench warfare has kind of given way at this point to mobile warfare, at least semi-mobile warfare. This is going to bring into to play a number of different factors that we haven't seen since 1914, and some that we didn't even see at that time. There's also going to be a, a shift from the defensive point of view because Germans are going to start now relying much more heavily on machine guns. Uh, trying to hold up, uh, delaying actions, fortifying positions. And very specifically, when they get the opportunity, Spence, they're going to make the, as much as they can either of previously built defensive positions or geographical barriers, or in some cases, both. This is absolutely true, because one thing just to get across the listeners is, although the British, the French, and indeed the Americans are dealing the Germans huge blows through the 100 days, the Germans are fighting 
very hard, especially in the early part of the 100 days. They are still a formidable army and they're not willing to throw in the towel just yet. And one thing that does happen in these more swirling mobile battles is it's chaotic. It is chaotic and a single German battalion or regiment, I should say, with a couple of machine guns can really hold up an advance, can surprise you, take you in the flank. The fighting's bloody. The British and the Allies do not have it all their own way. There are there are setbacks, there are localised setbacks. And though these battles are ending in overall victory, that doesn't mean that this is a parade to the finish line. This is bitter, intense fighting. And it's bitter and intense fighting of a type that in some ways neither army has really seen before. Because you made a great point, Dan, that the traditional trench warfare system, which had been dying out through 17, has now basically broken into pieces. It looks so much more like the fighting of World War II. People fighting from defended villages, woodlines, high ground. Yes, the people are digging trenches. Whenever the Germans stop, they're going to resort to the spade. But the continuous Western Front is being broken up through the 100 days as the Germans fight from whatever available position they have and try and delay this Allied advance. But the Germans actually have one ace up their sleeve because they're being driven back through July and August and into September. But they've got one ace in their sleeve, and this is the Hindenburg Line, which they constructed specially in 1916. You might recall, listeners, that the Germans fell back to that line at the end of the Battle of the and as they're being driven back across the old Somme battlefield in the summer of 1918, Ludendorff, overall commander, of course, his one plan is we're going to have to fall back into the Hindenburg line. That's very heavily defended. It's very strongly constructed. We're going to hold there. All we need to do is hold the Allies here through the autumn and into the winter, and then hopefully Germany can get a compromise peace. Ludendorff's pretty much given up on the idea of winning the war, but perhaps there can be a compromise if the Allies get stuck here. And... The Hindenburg Line is, is Germany's last sort of ace here. But one thing to really emphasize here is the Hindenburg Line is cutting edge by the standards of 1916. It's absolutely got all the lessons of 1916 in it. But as we've shown over this series, Dan, by 1918, what's cutting edge in 1916? Well, that doesn't quite cut the mustard anymore. Well, it's a long time, particularly in a warfare of this kind. And that's right. I mean, you, you've literally got this tradition Technology of 16 against warfare of late 18. That's important because it was early 18. That might be a different story yet again. And one particular area that I always find interesting to to visit and, and tour on the battlefields, actually, is the area around the St. Quentin Canal. So two areas in particular. One's a place called Riccaval, and the other, just a couple of miles up the road, more significant from that point of view, is uh, is Bellicourt. Um, so to give you an idea, the St. Quentin Canal, which also um, anchors part of the Hindenburg Line in and around the, the town of Saint-Quentin, is a big, deep cutting with a canal. Uh, the canal itself is not really the obstacle. It's the very high banks either side of it that cause it, make it very difficult to cross. And as a result of that, there are bottleneck positions that form. Uh, one of them is at a place called Rickval, where uh, an old bridge extends across the top of the canal and can be passed crucially by tanks. And the second is the Bellicourt Tunnel, and it's where a 200-year-old tunnel, opened by Napoleon Bonaparte, by the way, it's a canal tunnel, runs underground for a stretch of about, I think it's about two, two and a half miles. And what this means is that the canal doesn't exist in this position. And this area is going to be assaulted by, uh, I think, quite fittingly, actually, a combination of Australian, British, and American troops. And they're going to be able to pierce through the Hindenburg Line at this position. In effect, you've got this 1918 wave of momentum moving up towards the St. Quentin Canal, moving up towards the Hindenburg Line, of which the Germans have reoccupied, reoccupied fairly hastily, have not really managed to adapt and embed things like anti-tank guns into their positions. They don't have the depth that they think they do. And things like barbed wire are just nothing like the defensive measure they were in 1916, particularly because tanks are now working in, in teams to operate and split open, crack open little sections of trench warfare. You don't have to take the whole line. You've just got to take a section of it and get through it and get beyond it. And all of a sudden, things have changed. And that's exactly what happens. The 29th, 28th, 29th September 1918, the Hindenburg Line around Rickaval and again at the Bellicourt Tunnel is breached. It's a bloody breach. Don't get me wrong. It's no, no walk in the park, but it is breached. And the, from the moment that that happens, the Germans' last opportunity to make any kind of meaningful, solid defence, as far as I can tell, you maybe feel different about this, Spence, as far as I can tell, it's, it's done at that point. 
It is. It's done militarily. It's done politically. Beyond the Hindenburg line, there's nothing. They, the Germans do not have a fallback position beyond this. And it's important to remember a couple of things here. One, Ludendorff's state sensibly in some ways his hopes on this. Perhaps the Hindenburg Line will stop the British and Allied advance. Secondly, German soldiers have been told this. They were falling back into the Hindenburg Line. We're going to overwinter there. The Allies won't be able to break through. It's it's going to work out. And so there's a huge, devastating psychological blow. And militarily beyond that position, there's just nothing that they, the Germans can cling on to that's going to provide a really solid defensive line. It's almost, it's not, it's not quite this, but it's almost next stop, the Rhine, the German border. And indeed, in the aftermath of the breaching of the Hindenburg line, Ludendorff and Hindenburg, the, the commanders, the warlords who are in charge of Germany, really, basically tell the Kaiser in early October, the war's over. You've got to find a you've got to get a way out of the war. The German High Command has essentially given up by early October, that the fighting will continue. That's how important the breaching of the Hindenburg Line is. And although fighting is going to continue, bloody fighting through October and into early November, it's it's really now just a matter of time before the Germans crack. There's no prospect of, the, of them stopping the Allied advance. Instead, it's can the Germans get a, a good negotiated peace? Fortunately for the soldiers, that means there's going to be a lot of more bloody fighting to come. But that piercing of the Hindenburg Line is a decisive blow. And if we pick one battle out of the series of 100 days... I think it's that breaching of the Hindenburg line that is the decisive blow. Amiens might be the black day of the German army and inflicts huge damage upon it. Terrible shock to Ludendorff's system. But it's that breaking of this last defensive line that's crucial. And one thing to highlight is one of the spearhead divisions that does it is a division we featured in very different circumstances on this, this podcast. It, and that's 46th North Midland Division. It is indeed. So they're the same guys that are going to be, um, I think, unfairly actually uh, treated for really the most of the Great War. Uh, they're involved in 1915 uh, in and around the Hohenzollern Redoubt with a, that disastrous attack where they uh, they run into uh, into terrific fire. Same fire that's already broken a couple of regular regular army divisions the days before. So it's no no shame at all. Although you know, I think unfairly they're they're given a a really bad rap for that one. And then once again, I think if I'm remembering the same division spent up at Gomcor on the 1st of July, so part of the uh, the diversionary attack to the opening day of the Battle of the Somme. So they're two major performances who, in in fairness, probably not through any fault of their own, have been fairly subpar. 46th Div actually managed to smash through the Hindenburg line around Rickerval on that uh, day in the end of September 1918. And, and finally, at the end of the... A very bloody war managed to um, redeem their reputation, which probably shouldn't have been tarnished in the first place anyway. But it is uh, it is fascinating to see. And in fact, probably my favourite photograph of the entire Great War takes place on Rickerval Bridge in the days afterwards. Uh, if you do have a chance, listeners, do check it out. So if you search for Rickerval Bridge, you've got an entire brigade having just crossed the St. Quentin Canal, sitting on the bank, and you can see a brigadier addressing the uh, addressing the brigade from the bridge itself. Some really a uh, really powerful photo because in the background you can just about see troops going up the road, over the ridge, and beyond. Because of course, in that direction is going to be a, as Spencer said, a bloody a bloody journey. But eventually, by eleventh November, it's going to lead us back to Mons, which I think is a, a fascinating thing. And before we get to that, Spence, just a few words briefly about. The ground that's going to be taken between Saint Quentin and uh, eventually Mons. Many of these little towns and villages have been under German occupation for four years. Most of them haven't seen specific fighting, uh, certainly not in any any real um, sustained form. What's that whole experience like of men uh, advancing across green fields and liberating towns that have been under the uh, German army yoke for four years? This is a really interesting question because it's not something that the British Army has really specifically trained in. The, the British Army's got a really good training program uh, by mid-1917 into 18, but it focuses on the problems they've got to solve. Storming trenches, clearing trenches, clearing dugouts, barbed wire. And I think it's testament to the, the, the overall quality of training, the quality of leadership, the quality of soldiers, that they adapt to this very new fighting 
uh, in the, as you say, in some ways, the virgin fields beyond the Hindenburg line in untouched villages. And it's fascinating to see some of the problems they encounter. So this is very much World War II style fighting. You're advancing against enemy strong points in woods and villages and so forth dashing across fields and so so on and so forth. If you've got a few tanks, they'll help you. Otherwise, you're just down to your platoon tactics to work it out. You can call on some aircraft and artillery if they're available. But again, everything's being done very quickly. And it becomes something of a brigade commander's war or maybe even a battalion commander's war. So a brigade, about 4,000 men, battalion, about 1,000 men. You've got smaller units moving forward, trying to solve problems. And there's problems that haven't really been seen before, because as you rightly say, these villages have been under German occupation for four years, and they're full of civilians. Uh, one of the problems the Royal Artillery has, for example, is how do you actually carry out a major bombardment on a German-held village when it's packed with civilians? And that this is a genuine problem the artillery grapples with in 100 days, tries to find solutions to it. What's the best way to blast the Germans out of these places? Uh, how do you stay in touch with these units that are moving forward? How do you coordinate? And this is where you see this technological innovation again, whether it's wireless trucks rumbling up behind the infantry, whether it's aircraft prowling above. There's some aircraft now with voice-to-voice -voice radios absolutely impossible prior to the war. Connecting this, communications are so much better. But ultimately, this is, and this is the thing that's really striking, the fighting in October post-Hindenburg line, you've got still got massive artillery bombardments and so forth, hitting strong points. But you've also got a lot of relatively small scale, but quite bitterly contested infantry actions as a British infantry battalion tries to secure a village that's held by some German defenders. And the fighting's often pretty bitter and close range, but it looks so much like the fighting in Normandy. Close range action, infantry on infantry, hand grenade range. And the fact that the, the army's been able to maintain momentum in this and keep civilian casualties to, to a minimum is, is pretty remarkable. It's In some ways, it's a, one of the unsung triumphs of the army, I think. Yeah, and you know, I think what also makes this remarkable is the fact that the, the British, the French, the Americans by this point have advanced so far, they've advanced off their own maps. This is a, this is a really important point that sometimes we overlook. You know, there's a really detailed set of trench maps created between 1915 and 1918, which cover the, the main swathe of the Western Front, including a little bit of depth on the German side and a bit of depth on the British side. By this point, we're, we're off the maps. We've advanced that far. There are no detailed maps existing. And so all of these communications and, and various logistics um, issues that Spencer just mentioned there, they're all that much more difficult. And it's all that much more impressive that it even managed to happen. So where we see the Germans holding, they're now looking for geographical features. They're trying to hold this canal or hang on to this river line for a little while. There are some famous casualties in the very last days, a couple of uh, famous war poets, for example, crossing the so the Selle and the Sombra canals in early November. It's it's really is a completely different style of fighting. And, and I know, Spencer, you and I have discussed this before, particularly when it comes to, to Mons and a visit to, to, I think, both your and my favourite cemeteries. Uh, Saint-Siphoria military cemetery at Mons, where just by a quirk of fate, you've got the very first casualty of the Great War, the very last casualty of the Great War, at least from the British side, directly opposite each other. You know, if you put those two soldiers, they're only four years apart and wear the same uniform, if you put them into the war, or if you spoke to the, uh, could speak to the casualty of 1914, John Parr, and explain to him what the tactics and the British army looked like in 1918, it'd be totally confounded and have no idea what on earth you're talking about because things have changed so much. They really have. War is almost unrecognisable. And there are some, of course, veterans of 1914 still here, still fighting across these old battlefields. In some cases, they recognise where they are. Uh, but war is, is so different now. It's gone from the days of in 1914, both the French and the Germans go into battle with battle flags. It seems almost unimaginable. The French, in some cases, accompany their units with marching bands to play them into action. Now you've got tanks, aircraft, trucks, armoured cars, armoured personnel carriers, machine guns, mortars, flamethrowers, bombardments the like of which you've never seen before. Warfare has completely changed. And whereas, to go back to an analogy I made earlier, if you took a general of 1918 and put him in the 21st century, he'd recognize all the elements that he's looking at. I think if you took, say, Napoleon and you put him in the War of 1914, he'd recognize everything he was looking at. 
if you put him in the War of 1980, he would not recognise what he was looking at. The technology was completely, radically different. And the the scale of it as well is still vast. And we keep coming back to this idea of, of British machines and British equipment. And, and one thing I, I would add about the, the German army by October 1918, and, and perhaps even a little bit before, is the heart has been ripped out of the German army. It's still fighting hard in places, but what we see more and more and more is German officers surrendering their men en masse. And the reasons for this, various reasons have been put forward, but one of the reasons is these are officers, they're looking at their conscripts. Germans have been calling up 17-year-olds to try and fill the gaps. These are men who have established in an episode They've grown up in war. They're not well-fed, so they're physically small. And you've got these teenage soldiers, and the, the more experienced officers know there's just no way. When the British come at you with tanks, artillery, and aircraft, doesn't matter how courageous you are, you're going to get killed. And so there's there's there are mass surrenders as the British advance because it's just better to... It's clear the war's lost for many Germans. Better to surrender now than just throw these lives away uselessly and have your, your troops overrun by tanks. And you start to see mass surrenders in a way that there hasn't really been up until this point. Troops will always surrender if they're surrounded and difficulties, but now the, the German army is starting to really fall to pieces and ill-discipline in the rear areas of the German army becomes endemic. There's assaults on uh, rear area troops, uh, logistics troops and things. There's looting in the German rear areas. Uh, there's also, I have to say, there's, there's some severe brutality against French civilians. As the Germans are retreating from some of these villages, they brutalise the civilians as they leave. Um, the, it's clear that this once mighty army is finished, and it, it's been finished by these years of attrition, but above all else by just having no answer to this overwhelming Allied assault. And I'm really glad you used that word Allied there, because I know we've been putting a really British focus on this for the earlier podcast episodes that we've done, I, I think we should just reiterate as we come to the end of the, the summary of the Great War, at least, this is absolutely an Allied victory. Not a British one. It's not an American one. It's not an Australian one. It's not a French one. It's an Allied one. Because if it wasn't for these concentric hammer blows up and down the Western Front at different points, pulling those last German reserves from pillar to post, there may well have been some holding in places like the Hindenburg Line, and perhaps we would have seen the Great War going into 1919, which of course nobody wanted to see. But it's the overall Allied effort, a team effort, which eventually brings the German army to the negotiating table and starts motion, at least, for the armistice, which is going to eventually, of course, come into effect on the morning of the 11th of November. It is. And the, the background to this as well is that internally, Germany is beginning to descend into a state of chaos. The army is being chewed up, as we mentioned, surrendering en masse. There are still German units that are fighting hard. There are still those who are of high standard are holding out. But every time they make a stand, they get overrun. The Germans just cannot hold a position now. They're getting hit, pushed back every time. And there's a real question in Germany about if the army is completely destroyed, out in France or, or just wrecked to a point it's no longer a coherent unit. How are we going to prevent a revolution in Germany? A spectre of Bolshevism is walking the streets in Germany. The Russians, of course, just gone into a Bolshevik revolution in 17. The German Navy has mutinied in October 1918. A fascinating story I'd love to cover in a full episode. It's it's been ordered out on a suicide mission in October 1918. They're going to send the German fleet out, rush it towards the English coast essentially fight a final Gotterdammerung battle somewhere in the North Sea or the English Channel. The entire fleet will be destroyed because it's better to have the fleet destroyed than have it surrender meekly. Well, that might sound like a good idea to a, a blood and thunder German admiral, but it doesn't sound a great idea to the sailors. They know the war's ending and they mutiny and they actually board trains to go to Berlin to overthrow the Kaiser, which is an incredible twist of fate. So Germany has to make this armistice, otherwise it's going to collapse internally with consequences that can only be guessed at. And so the armistice is ultimately agreed for the 11th of November. And just as we come to the end of this, I think it's, it's worth reflecting on, on one of the most tragic elements of the war, and that's men who were killed on that final day. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, we've actually just covered this fairly recently in a, in a detailed video on the Battle Guide YouTube channel. So if you want to know more about that, do dive in and have a look at that because we cover the, the main casualties from each of the, the major belligerent nations out on the Western Front at the time. 
So we look at the the first British casualty around 9.30 in the morning on the 11th of November uh, in and around Mons, who himself, as it happens, is a 1914 Mons veteran, a man by the name of George Ellison. We look at the um, last French casualty, which is about 10.45 a.m., 15 minutes short of the armistice, a man by the name of Augustin Trebuchon, who is uh, killed, rather ironically, bringing up a note up towards the front line uh, explaining that an armistice is coming into effect and also that uh, rations will be available post 11 o'clock. He's a runner killed at that point. Uh, the last Canadian soldier who's killed uh, probably less than five minutes before the armistice comes into effect, George Leonard Price. He's killed not far from Mons either, um, just searching a house, gets shot in the chest. And uh, got to spare a thought for the for the poor Americans who lose hundreds upon hundreds of men on the morning of the 11th of November. Now, this just a quick point on this, Spence, because this might sound super bloodthirsty, the idea of attacking, knowing that an armistice is coming into force. And uh, the last man to be killed, Henry Gunther, uh, a witness account records that uh, the German guns can be heard to stop the very moment his body hits the ground. Mm. Now, it sounds very poetic and that kind of thing, but actually there's maybe a bit of truth behind this because uh, from a practical point of view, nobody really wants to be lugging artillery shells around after 11 o'clock. So a lot of guys are actually firing off their guns to get rid of them before the 11 o'clock armistice comes into place. So there is a kind of crescendo of noise at that point. And Henry Gunther certainly dies at 10.59 and something seconds. It's not impossible it's 11 a.m. with him charging towards a German machine gun. In fact, the German machine gunners on the outskirts of the village where he's uh, where he's attacking stand up and wave him back. You can have this ground in a few seconds' time. Just go back. And he keeps going forward and even fires a shot and uh, is hit by a burst of machine gun, becoming the last, let's say, the last Allied casualty on the Western Front. There are, in fact, Germans who are killed later on, including a young... Uh, Lieutenant in the 19th Uhlans who goes out to find out if it's all over and is greeted with a shot through the chest that kills him. So, I mean, utterly tragic. But just going back to the idea, Spence, of, uh, of sending people over the top on the last morning, it, there's a really important point to make here and one that I think quite often we overlook. Uh, an armistice isn't an end to fighting at all. An armistice is a pause. Yes, this is absolutely true. So... It's in some ways, I don't know if you used this phrase earlier in the podcast, it's inaccurate to say the war ends on the 11th of November. It's inaccurate yeah. for a number of reasons. One, there's still fighting going on in other parts of the, the world and will continue into 1919. But you absolutely rightly say the armistice just means fighting is going to stop. And one thing to bear in mind is that there's a substantial number of Allied commanders who think that this is just going to be a pause, that... It may not last. It may last a matter of days, weeks, months, perhaps, that it doesn't necessarily represent the end of the war. And so they want to make sure that their guys are on the high ground. They know the Germans are on the ropes. They, they know this from their advances over the last month. They want to make sure they secure these objectives just in case the fighting gets renewed in, in you know, 48 hours or, or even you know, three or four months. And so though we know that the armistice does end the fighting on the Western Front, it's really important to remember that that's not completely clear to the vast majority, I think, of commanders on the ground. If you're a brigadier down in the British Army and you're looking out and you can see the Germans are on some high ground and you're in a valley on the 10th or 11th of November, so an armistice is coming, well, your guys might have to assault that that from your, this valley onto the hill in six weeks' time. And as we've re established repeatedly on this episode, you give the Germans time, they're going to fortify it. So take a chance now. Let's kick them off now and we'll worry about the consequences later. So though it might seem very callous and very bloodthirsty and very inexplicable, that in some ways is a hindsight view because we know this does end the war, but not many people at the time can be certain that that's going to be the case. So that's why the attacks continue in many places. Yeah, and I think, you know, given that we have covered I, in a fair bit of detail exactly what these uh, these attacks are like and that there is a clearly a momentum and really from September onwards, the writing is on the wall from that point of view. It's just, for, for you and I, I know both who go out to these battlefields quite a lot and, you know, to see to see headstones by the thousands uh, commemorate men lost in the last days, weeks, months of the war is always a, a really powerful sentiment. You can understand why there's a, 
a great amount of bitterness at home. And to a certain extent, why one of the overriding feelings, I think, of the general public today is just one of just futile waste on the Western Front, particularly with those guys that are killed in the last days. But, I mean, is it fair to say, should we not be treating the number of casualties and the ground taken and the advances made um, as part of the picture that results in the armistice? Without those advances, without that ground taken, without the pressure being applied, perhaps the war doesn't end in November. That's absolutely true. The importance of continuing the advance and not giving the German army time to rest, not giving it any peace, not giving it time to recover is absolutely crucial. The, the, the recuperative ability of armies in the First World War is really remarkable, uh, and that goes for the Germans too. And although the German army is in a dire state, there's no doubt about it by October, November 1918, Given a pause, given a, a winter period of, of where there's no fighting, there's a lull, it would have recovered. And think too, listeners, about how the Allies feel at this stage. After years of battering away at the Western Front, trying to liberate France and Belgium, finally they have the Germans on the run. And you're not going to give, the, the, the to, to take a, a quote from elsewhere, you're going to give the devils no rest. You want to try and drive them out, especially if you're French. Germans have been occupying huge chunk of your country for years, especially if you're Belgian. Germany's virtually overrun Belgium and has inflicted terrible atrocities on it as well. There's a real passion to push and push and push and drive the Germans out. Of course, there's also a view shared by various commanders, not least um, John Pershing of the Americans, that the uh, the armistice comes too soon. Instead, the Germans, who are falling to pieces, should have been pushed all the way back to the Rhine, across the Rhine, and into Germany to let the Germans know you have been defeated. An occupying army has come to your territory. Your army has been crushed. But of course, there's 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 various factors in play, not least, as I've mentioned, this real fear that Germany is going to collapse internally and you're going to get a Bolshevik revolution, which is terrifying everybody at the time, or you're going to get a period of anarchy. But just to lend a bit of weight to this idea about needing to keep the Germans on the back foot at the end, in the summer of 1919, when the Treaty of Versailles is presented to the German government, Kaiser's abdicated by then, it's a new democratic government, that government asks the German military, can you defend Germany? Because the German government considers rejecting the Treaty of Versailles and fighting on. That's... Even in 1919, even after all these defeats, even after all this chaos, and this is not the Kaiser's government, remember, this is the, the supposedly new, caring, sharing Weimar Republic. And they ask the army, can you put up a resistance? They even speculate, the German government, what if we had a levy en masse like the French had had in the Revolutionary War? Just mobilise everybody, man, woman and child, and just defend the borders of Germany. And the army says, no way. We, we can put up a resistance for maybe two weeks and then the Allies will will be in and we're really going to suffer. And one of the reasons the German army says no way is because they know how badly they've been mauled in the autumn, uh, in the summer and the autumn of 1918. So these attacks, yes, they look, they look cruel, they look callous. And rightly, as you say, Dan, when you're in those cemeteries for the battles of 1918 and you see row upon row of 19-year-olds who've been killed in late October or early November, and you think, gosh, what a waste. But in the wider context, this did have a purpose. Absolutely. I think that's a really nice way to round that up, actually. You know, this to say that these things are futile, I think, is, is potentially a disservice to the men who gave their lives in, the, uh, in those last days of war. But I hope what we have done in this first opening summary, the first barrage of Not So Quiet on the Western Front, is to at least lend a little context to the subject as a whole, the story of the fighting on the Western Front. I know we've got a really really knowledgeable audience and it's great to see so many of you coming to join us week in and week out now and to get questions and these kind of things coming in it's really rewarding for both myself and spencer from this point of view so do please keep them coming i think what we're going to do now spence is is maybe switch to the thematic slightly and and continue with the kind of off the cuff general what do we find interesting and if we find it interesting hopefully other people will too that's absolutely true and 
if there's one thing that I think we can do, you and I, Dan, it's discuss the First World War. It's as <laughs> listeners, as as you've let us know, which I really appreciate. It's obvious this is a passion for us. Uh, we've dedicated so much time and effort to studying it, walking the ground, reading up on it, learning about it. It's it's a genuine place to get to share this with you. And I'm really looking. I hope you've enjoyed, listeners, the survey of of key British battles year by year. There's still, of course, many British battles to revisit. But I think the next step, as you say, Dan, it's going to be looking at some thematic elements, some unexpected aspects of the First World War, some interesting local stories. And one thing I'd say is we'd love you as listeners, if there's an aspect you'd really like us to look at, if there's an issue you'd like to raise, let us know in the comments or let us know in your review. Drop us an email because we're very open to being guided by, by your interests as well. And as long as we all get to share our interests, I think everybody's happy. 100%. 100%. Yep, couldn't agree more. And uh, on that note, I think, let's say, if you are happy and uh, you're happy to tell people you're happy, do please consider leaving a review wherever you are. It really helps us, helps with the inverted commas algorithm that we so often speak about. But in effect, the more people see reviews and leave reviews, the more these podcasts get published to a wider audience and the, the stronger a base we can build and the more people we can tell about the fascinating subject that is the First World War. And if you're really keen, you can, of course, join our Patreon community as well. We've got a great community growing all the time of like-minded history lovers. And we talk about various different aspects there, including uh, a lot of detail on our upcoming documentaries that you find over on our YouTube channel, which is uh, Battle Guide on YouTube. Lots of interesting content there as well. So that brings us to the end of this first summary series uh, of part of the new Not So Quiet on the Western Front sequence. Um, Thank you very much from my point of view. And uh, I'll leave the word to Dr. Spencer Jones going to round us up with something incredibly profound, no doubt. Profound and pithy. Well, thank you, Dan. You've really put me on the spot there. But what I would say is that in the time we've had and the episodes that we've covered, I hope we've given you as the listeners not only a, a, a taster of some of the big topics, the big subjects of debate about the First World War, but that we've also fired your interest. Because in the time we have available for each episode, of course, we can't cover everything, but we have, I hope, sowed sowed the ground for so many future discussions. I, if somebody who's got way too much time in their hands wanted to go back and record how many times did either Dan or myself say, I'd love to get into this in a future <laughs> podcast episode. Well, that's what we hope to be doing for the remainder of this series. And just to reiterate, if there's a subject you'd like us to cover, like us to discuss, let us know in the comments and we'll do our best if it's within our remit. But otherwise, I'd just like to thank everybody who supported the podcast so far and say I'm really looking forward to the, the next episodes. You've been listening to Not So Quiet on the Western Front, a Battle Guide production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, why not check out the Battle Guide YouTube channel, where we regularly release documentaries exploring some of the most famous and extraordinary episodes from throughout military history. If you'd like to support the Battle Guide team to create more content just like this, why not head over to our Patreon, where for the cost of just a cup of coffee, you can get access to full-length virtual battlefield tours, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, decide which subjects we cover in future podcasts and videos, and join a fantastic community of like-minded people. That's all this time. See you again soon. That's a wrap. Well done, mate. That was really strong. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was really good. We we were a bit on fire there. (laughs) Boom, boom, you know. (laughs)